The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen Honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the cat. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. A little piece each time. You have a lot of spirits in here, but there's one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. Come to us. We are ready. Are you? What's with the, the get up? Oh, I do it blend in. You know, you know, zombies don't mess with other zombies. Buddy of mine, makeup guy, showed me how to do this. Cornstarch, you know, some berries, a little licorice for the ladies. It suits my lifestyle. You know, I like to get out and do stuff. Just wait nine holes in the Riviera. Just walk down. Nobody there. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. In spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a um, somewhat smaller table. We're in Studio D2. Uh, we're at Dalton's home. Hey guys. Evening. We had a plumbing issue at Studio D. And as a result... Studio DA. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so we are recording here and we're going to be talking about films that will never find their way into a film studies course syllabus. This week it's going to be James Wan's The Conjuring. But before we get any further into any of that foolishness, we have got to do some introductions. At the great high throne of the Council of Elrond, if you would introduce yourself, sir. I am Arthur Gordon and I'm here to tell you that Dustin exists, Dalton exists, and for us as people, our very destiny hinges on which we should choose to decide. <laughs> That is far too on the nose. Woo! <laughs> My word. We're going to have to do some balancing on that. That was way too close. Okay, well, across the way on the sofa, if you would, ma'am. My name's Alexandra Bohannon, and I don't know, do you guys want to play a game of hide and clap? Absolutely nope. not. <laughs> Seated on the floor, um, meditating in Indian fashion, uh, could you introduce yourself, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and can we do it again? Mm. And finally, that's uh, podcast. That's what I said on our wedding night. 
Uh, finally, uh, my name is Dustin Sells, and when the music stops, you'll see me in the mirror standing behind you. That is accurate. <laughs> I also am the faceless old woman who lives in your room. Uh, but moving <laughs> right along. That's who that is? <laughs> We're going to be talking about James Wan's The Conjuring. Now, dear listener, to warn you, this is not a review show. There are a great many excellent review-style podcasts all over the interwebs. However, we're an analysis show. And so what we do is we break a film down and we talk about meaning within, inside, and sometimes in spite of the text that we're dealing with. And so that means there will be spoilerific spoilers. However, this first little segment of the show is going to contain our quick reviews and also a synopsis from The Voice of Cinema. So if you have not seen The Conjuring and do not know the secrets of that which is conjured, um, that would be your opportunity to stop as we move into analysis. But until then, let's do our quick reviews, beginning with that synopsis from the voice of the cinema back i'm hoping that they dropped and uh, is able to give us uh, one of those stellar synopses once again paranormal investigators ed and lorraine warren <clears throat> <laughs> paranormal investigators ed and lorraine warren work to help a family terrorized by a dark presence in their farmhouse that cough got him down didn't they arthur yeah. That's excellent. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're feeling much better and back with us to bring analysis. Let's go ahead and move our way around the table and give our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, perhaps a reason or two as to why this film works. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. You know, this was my second viewing of The Conjuring, and the first one was in a theater that was mostly empty. It was uh, our first date. It was our not our first date, was it? Surely we'd seen a movie together before The first that. time, the, just the two of us, I think. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us. That might, that might be true. Anyway, well, me and Dustin uh, decided oh, yeah, to go... I scared. I held his hand. <laughs> I was so scared. Um, this was, uh, you know, a really great experience in the theater. Very scary. Um, I, for whatever reason, and maybe it was the, the atmosphere in which we watched, we all watched this film together much like we did Lords of Salem, um, it wasn't particularly frightening this time. I think it still works very well. We were chatty. Yeah, and I think that was part of it. But for me, uh, much like a comedy, the barometer for whether or not a horror film is good, at least to some extent, is whether or not it's scary. And I think this is definitely a frightening film. Uh, I think you have to have that proper setting, though. I think it's very easy to take the scares out of this film. Um, which a really good horror film will make you afraid no matter what. Um, this is a very fun film. Nick Sanford has often said, you know, uh, contrary, the, the uh, everlasting contrarian that he is, but he doesn't find this film scary at all. But he finds it endlessly fun. For him, it's, he, he says it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark of horror movies. It's a rip-rollicking good time, but uh, he doesn't particularly find it scary. And on this viewing, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with him. I think it's very well made. James Wan is a whiz with his camera work and telling his DP where he wants that camera and finding inventive ways, places to put the camera. Uh, the scene in particular I'm thinking of is one of, the, one of the daughters feels her leg tugged on at night and realizes her sister is asleep and she checks under the bed, which we've all done as children. And I think that's one of the best things this film does is recreate those frightening moments in your life and actually give the characters a reason to be afraid. So it takes that, that uh, childhood experience we all have of checking the closet or under the bed or you know trying to figure out why we're scared at night, and it does this great camera trick where the camera's upside down looking under the bed with her and then writes itself and looks at the door um, in a, a very seamless take. Um, and it's a really cool camera trick, and I think that's one of the things this film does best is find those moments that we all have and all find ourselves afraid and, and work them into a horror film. I think that's something James Wan is really good at is 
finding the real life terror that you have in your life and putting it in a ghost story. Excellent. I like that review very much. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Does it work or not? I, I think it works. I love The Conjuring. It was, in fact, my top film of 2013, and not just as a genre film, uh, just a film on, on the whole. I, think. I recall you making that selection. I do. It works quite well, I think. Um, I love every moment of it uh, while watching it in theater. James Wan does a phenomenal job echoing Dalton, um, just showing just how good of a director he really is. I think the visual aesthetic, the costuming, set design, soundtrack, all puts together this film that feels and looks like a 70s movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful to look at. The camera does some fun stuff. The jump scares are well designed. And it just gets flat out crazy, but it's handled well. Uh, this is like Insidious on steroids. And where Insidious fails, I think The Conjuring works in full. I um, thought Insidious was supposed to be scarier than The Conjuring. I am totally with you, Arthur, but I'm not going to say the Insidious fails. I would say it fails in its comedy delivery because you have okay. I, there's a tonal break I think with well, it. It's a, the tone was that a little works more, better more or less integrated. I'm thinking fair. specifically of the buddy element of the sheriff and the research assistant Basically compared the to the same paranormal investigators. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a improvement there. Do you still find the Conjuring scary, and why, Arthur Gordon? I don't know if it's as scary on the rewatch, just because I'm familiar with it. I'm watching this last time with the group, it was kind of you don't get as I don't think involved. It's kind of a perennial problem for movies, isn't it? Yeah. I think most horror is a spectacle where you develop these jump scares and build uh, your sequences for that initial fright. I don't know. I think watching The Conjuring again in a crowded theater for a second time, I think it would still be just as effective. Oh, yeah, people screaming, don't go up those yeah. stairs and that kind of stuff. That yeah. investment there. That's yeah. I think aesthetically and uh, from a story standpoint, it's very well uh, designed as a chiller. And to build those those jump scares, especially the uh, I think everybody jumped when the hands the hands clap the hands man are yeah I knew it was coming and I jumped yeah. <laughs> well I, and I, Arthur I think what you speak to is is something that all films have going for them in that group setting uh, in a large theater yeah. a packed theater everyone is totally engrossed and in a horror film you can feel that sense everyone is putting off that sense of unease mm-hmm. and when you have five hundred people in the same room just like. <laughs> I think it's very effective. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, I am so curious <laughs> to hear your thumbs up, thumbs down review right. and why. Sure. Um, I, okay, listener, keep in mind that as this podcast, I think I've seen maybe five horror movies in my entire life. And four of them were with us. Yes. <laughs> One was Pontypool with uh, Dalton, which was fantastic. But we, go listen to the Pontypool show if you're interested in hearing more about that. It's a good episode. I re-listened to it. Yeah. Um, It's one of our best. In terms of this movie, I would say that it is a good movie. I was interested in it. I was engrossed in it. Um, The mystery was worth solving. The details were really integral to the plot. I did feel like I was getting spoon-fed a little bit and a little bit on the, like, force-feeding side whenever we would cut back and forth to the lectures and then the lecture would directly correlate to the scenes that follow about, you know, the content of what is going to drive the plot forward. Um, but I did not expect that third part, I guess it's not really the third act, but the part where the possession is starting to take place at the warden's home. And that really got under my skin really hard uh, with the doll and the fact that I think it's easily translatable to be like, okay, well, you know, this is a movie, you can't take it with you, but then whenever you go home and you're thinking about it later, it's kind of like a version of what's being displayed on screen. They took the horror with them, like a piece of gum stuck to the bottom of your shoe. 
and that's kind of that kind of mimics your experience leaving the, leaving the theater or the room after you watch The Conjuring. I guess I think I built it up in my head really hard about how scary it was going to be. I know we were we're watching in a group setting, so that makes everything easier. And we were chatting. And we were chatting. We were friends, and we're laughing, and we're cutting up. And we, it was not serious. I've never watched a horror movie in a theater, so I haven't felt the sense of collective unease. Um, but to but to say, I was leaving The Conjuring and leaving the uh, Lords of Salem with the same people and the same practically the same experience. Um, I was more disturbed afterwards by the Lords of Salem, to be honest. Um, it had a, like a really lasting sense of unease to it, whereas this had a bunch of scares, but nothing that felt like really correlatable to my life. And that's kind of where the horror gets under your skin is being like, oh, Jigsaw could go and kidnap me and make me saw my own limbs off in his little mad puzzle torture chambers, you know. And that's kind of, I guess, maybe where The Conjuring lost it for me because it was so far divorced from my own life that it... It was hard for it to be scary, even the, in the group sense. Um, the great makeup, great costuming. I love the costumes and the period. Setting in the period, I felt was a great choice and very interesting to see all the technology. What's UV? I don't know. Um, some Ask great, Drew. <laughs> some great moments there. Um, there were some good comedy bits that helped lighten it up, and um, I was surprised that it ended with a happy ending because. Most of the time, I associate horror movies with everyone dying and nobody ending, having a, a good end, as they say. Um, and then it'd be interesting to see Annabelle, but I'm not going to go see it in theaters, so. That's fair. And I think that's part of what I would say in my review also, um, some of the same things that Alex has said, is that um, this film, Lords of Salem, is something that sticks with you. And there's other horror films, The Exorcist, um, which may come up again in the course of the show. Um, that this sort of sticks with you that keeps you thinking about what's going on <clears throat> with the film in question. This is this movie is more like a roller coaster ride. It's you experience it in the moment and you enjoy the moment that you're experiencing, uh, but then it, it, it I mean, it's not disposable. I don't want to say that because no. it's absolutely a fun ride. But you know Nick Sanford's comparison to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark I think is apropos. I, I'm not you know constantly trying to mull over. What, what it's doing to me when I see something like uh, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. In the same way, I don't really think those sort of thoughts with The Conjuring. I, I just think, oh, this movie's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy the experience of watching it. I, I enjoyed the theatrical experience, which was more frightening. I enjoyed the sort of uh, communal group um, fun experience that we had uh, on Friday night. So uh, it, it's, it's still very much fun. I'm, and, of course, I'm going to echo everything I said. I'm not going to go ahead and do it, but performances and shot selection and you know editing and all pacing, I think all those things are right on with the film. But it is, uh, it is an event that's sort of encapsulated in the moment, and it is not the sort of thing that, that sticks with you um, like some of those more unsettling sort of films that we've been talking about so far. But thank you very much, uh, dear co-hosts, uh, for those reviews, dear listener. We'd love to hear yours as well. You'll have a chance to know where you can give that feedback later on in the show. But guys, um, we're here to do analysis, and I think that's really where this movie's going to pop for us. And so let's move our way around the table once again. This is Alexander Bohannon. Um, what analysis bring you? I'd like to talk about the portrayal of non-believers and skeptics in this film. There are several that, you know, at the start of this film, nobody, besides the Warrens, believe in this stuff until it happens to them. And that's a really interesting point that I'll come to later. 
But, but there are two kind of main conversions, if you will, in, in this film. The first is the family, because it takes, it takes a while for them to realize that it's not just people, you know, sneaking in their house at night. It's not just the kids playing pranks or kids being kids. It's really something rather ghastly happening in this house. And until the mom goes and kind of... Something quite insidious... Okay, I'll give the dad jokes medal to you today, Dalton. <laughs> Woo! Anyway, um, so you have the the first conversion where the mom kind of breaks out, learns more, brings the truth home in the form of the prophets of the Warrens, and then they have like kind of that conversion experience that kind of cinches it for them. There always seems to be a conversion experience where. I'm looking at you. The, 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 the <laughs> I think I think you're right on that. That every time there's this sort of, I mean, even if it's vampires or it's werewolves or it's some other sort of supernatural monster, there there are those who live in a world in which those things only happen in the movies or in the storybooks, and then the 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 awful realization that that these things may occur in life, and that you must be converted over instead of saying they're infected, they're zombies, instead of saying that there's some strange bloodsuckers that they're vampires, instead of saying mom's sick. Moms possessed in this right. case. <clears throat> well, and I think in a lot of films, what we end up seeing is because we, as the audience, are privy to the dramatic irony happening because we're seeing more than the characters at play. I think that skeptical characters often played as a fool. Oh, you're yes. so silly! Clearly, these are zombies. They're not. They don't have rabies. You dumb dumb. Right. Exactly. And I think that the dramatic irony is even laid on further whenever we move to the policeman, the second conversion of the film. Um, and the thing that I didn't quite expect when going into this movie is seeing the unwillingness of the mainstream church of wanting to help. I know if it's, I know that they're tied by their, you know, specific laws as dictated by the hires up, the Pope, and all of that stuff. But, you know, I did find it interesting that a family in need that has a demon, and I don't know how many of these kind of Boy Who Cried Wolf situations kind of happen to their local pastor, um, but whenever you have these two prominent paranormal investigators coming to you and being like, these people have demons, and they've worked with them before, the unwillingness to help, um, just because someone's an, a, a quote, non-believer in the standpoint of their own philosophy, it was, that was kind of, kind of sad to me. Well, you know, of all the sort of ecclesiastical, churchy sort of ships that are in the waters of American spirituality, um, one of the largest is the Roman Catholic Church, and that's not a ship that turns quickly. Right. And so, I mean, that's that's part of what's going on in the film. A creaky bureaucratic machine, certainly. And I know if the father had, you know, jumped over there really quickly, that he could have lost maybe his um, his powers in his local community as the priest or whatever he, he could is. Use Lose some, yeah. Yeah, and he could get, uh, become incredible, get kind of um, slaps on the wrist, come down from his hires up. But I thought it was kind of an interesting little critique on mainstream religion, because you have some, you know, a couple of, quote, practitioners that are converted to some faith, if not maybe a faith that is within some larger entity, a larger body. But then you have the, quote, larger faith really not accepting them as a kind of legitimate option. And that's kind of the reading that I got out of this was that you have this, you know, large body that doesn't want to acknowledge what you're 
acknowledge your spirit experience is legitimate. It's a, still a spiritual experience and, you know, not even willing to bend the rules whenever you learn of more of its legitimacy. So, any thoughts on that? Well, I think absolutely there is this sort of tension that's being held oftentimes when it comes to questions of belief of supernatural. And what I think the, this film and other films like it do is they sort of combine the scientific with the photography and the EMP and whatnot, which is somewhat spurious science, I mean, to be absolutely fair. But it's... Pseudo being a, uh, a word often thrown around. Well, I'm uh, fairly thrown around, I would say. Yeah. And uh, so, but there is uh, some some of that methodology being employed as well. And what we're dealing with are experiential um, data, which are um, anecdotal and, uh, of course, uh, difficult to uh, reproduce uh, and whatnot. So I, I think absolutely, and most of these films sort of do play with that duality of belief. Um, I'm thinking of the X-Files in particular, where there is sort of this belief that wants to make things um, that they're not uh, in, the, in the Fox Mulder character, and then there's Scully, who is sort of being the empiricist. And yet, there is uh, much unexplained, and somewhere in that fuzzy gray middle, I think, is Ruth. And it seems to me that the film suggests the same idea. Right. And just, I think that it's interesting that you have these experiences happening to the point where they have happened to this priest before, but he's just not willing to go and help these people. And I find it interesting that it's such a, it's a movie that has so many religious elements in it, but that priest never steps foot in the Warren's house, ever. Mm. And, you know, it, it really does kind of speak as to what what are these large religious entities all about? Are they really, like, the large one, the, the huge bureaucratic superstructures of whatever flavor, Christianity, what have you, it's not just Christianity. Are they really about helping people, or is it really about kind of following the rules to kind of cover their own asses or not and therefore not helping people. Well, I think it, part of it's a narrative device um, that's found often in horror. Um, I know quite a few clergymen that know quite well, and most of them um, that I know, um, one I know so well I'm wearing his pants, um, would make sure that uh, that uh, that those people would not be abandoned and someone would be there with them. I'm sorry. Was... <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I'm wearing his pants. I do. I wear his pajamas as well. But I'm moving right along. Uh, thank you very much, Miss uh, Bohannon. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis would you offer? Well, I've decided to bring yet another entry in, in what we could almost have as a GTGC miniseries horror. The most conservative of genres. Um, and specifically, I, I want to key in on witches uh, in general, but again, in particular to this film. Um, there is a problem with witches in film, and, and doing the Lords of Salem back-to-back uh, -back with The Conjuring, I, I think it would behoove us to talk about it. More than any other monster, and I would say exclusive to any to all other horror monsters, witches are always women. Always. Without question. Um, vampires are, you know, pretty much uh, evenly distributed uh, among sexual lines. Um, so historically began mostly male. But mostly male, but in our modern film-going context, they are... Well, I wouldn't even say historically, actually. Well, I, I mean, say those got... crazy French filmmakers figured out that lesbians look good and that if you did them as vampires... Le would... Lesbian vampire hunters. Isn't that... that or le lesbian vampire slayers. Well, there is the Lesbian <sighs> Vampire Lovers, directed by Jean Roland. You That's get... not it. You had me at lesbians. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, even going back into folklore, you've got the Bloody Baroness. I mean, boom, mm -hmm. right there. Lady mm -hmm. Vampire, uh, mm -hmm. early in the folklore. Um, Frankenstein, Frankensteinian creations, I mean, as famous as... 
versus Frankenstein's monster is the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, the only one that even comes close is werewolves, uh, but that speaks more to uh, the troubling nature of masculinity uh, as something that's barely civilized. And masculine adolescent in particular. Exactly. Um, and, and sexual violence and all these sort of things we think about when we think of werewolves. You grow hair and you ravish girls. Precisely. But witches, unlike any other, and again, I, I do want to preface this with, yes, werewolves are almost, to the extent that witches are always women, werewolves are typically men. But it's it's portraying something about um, the problems with masculinity. Whereas witches, um, what we see, time and time again, really, is this really troubling relationship of folklore in the film, and fo- folklore in the movies, I should say, uh, rolls better off the tongue, uh, and their troubling relationship with, with women in general. Uh, in The Conjuring and in Lords of Salem, uh, two things that come up time and time again uh, are, are these almost these perversions of, of, of the feminine. Um, in The Conjuring, uh, <clears throat> Vera Famiga's character, Lorraine, specifically talks about how um, sacrificing this baby is going to give her big ups with, with the devil uh, because she she's taking her womanly gift and perverting it. Uh, with the Lords of Salem, we have all of this very violent uh, talk about female genitalia. Um, and it's really troubling because what do we do with witches? We burn them and hang them. Uh, werewolves, we shoot them. And, and it's it's like, oh, poor guy. He never had a chance. It's always a sympathetic Lon Chaney transforming it's, yeah. back into his self. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's got that, that King Kong, the beast who loved the woman aspect to it. Am I right? Right. Uh, with witches, what we come across is, oh, should have stayed in the kitchen. She uh, she went a little too off the rails, didn't she? And I think that's a really serious problem because werewolves aren't afraid of the unchained man. They're afraid of the man who hasn't civilized himself and hasn't reconciled himself with society. I, I think witches, what we're speaking to, is a fear of the unchained woman, though. Uh, a woman who does not succumb to rules that have been put in place upon her. Um, and, and I'm trying to tiptoe. I don't want any listener to be like, well, that's the same thing with werewolves, bro. You're dumb. There's a power dynamic at play that I think is important to, to point out whether you want to acknowledge it or not there is a history of uh, female oppression throughout known human history that doesn't really exist for men uh, in nearly that kind of extent uh, and with werewolves what we're speaking to is again this cyclical transformation based around the moon hmm? yeah, am I right am yeah I right? and I mean um so, so I, I think with with werewolves, what we're seeing is you know this this nature and this inability to shackle nature to society. What we're seeing with women is not even a shackling to nature; rather, it is a breaking from nature and a breaking from societal confines. And uh, looking at women who do not wish to be held in place by patriarchal systems. Now, again, the witches in both the Lords of Salem and the Conjuring are doing some some heinous shit. Uh, let's not make any mistake. But but witches in film and witches in folklore are, are treated much more harshly than than their closest masculine counterpart werewolves as Dustin said we get that sympathetic shot of Lon Chaney turning back into Lon Chaney it's like, oh poor Lon Chaney um, we don't really get that in The Conjuring the demon's been exercised and banished to hell and it's like well glad you hung yourself oh, too bad you didn't not curse everyone but good thing you're gone yeah, and there's also this kind of critique. I'm glad you brought that up, and you might have said this in a different form, but I'm just going to say it a lot more obviously. The fact that, obviously, because the man has no control of his own body autonomy, so he has to go rape and pillage and kill and maim and any other you know, synonymous word you want to do to these lay people, to the villagers, to all the hot young vixens with the D-cup breasts. Like, that's the thing that happens in werewolf movies. And then when they shoot them, oh, well, he just couldn't control himself. Cut back to the women. When a woman makes a break from society, it's A, definitely all her fault, and B, she's always 
a bitch as well, well it's, as a it's witch. It's a clear defiance as, a, as opposed to sort of this uncontrollable sort of urge. It excuses the male figure as opposed to uh, making a sort of cognitive decision to uh, throw your throw your die with Satan. Exactly. exactly. It, it, it is an inability to constrain one's uh, nature, which is bullshit, by the way, uh, versus uh, a choosing, as Dustin said, a conscious choice to throw in with, with the dark forces, as it were. And again, we always come back to horror as a conservative genre, and it's because conservatism as Dustin touched on when we uh, talked about viral films when we, and Dustin touched on this when we talked about the thing and the idea of the viral uh, being a, a sort of endorsement of fascism and the ability to know right from wrong with which is we have this very similar thing where it's like well we know what's right and what's not right is casting him with the devil and cutting up babies so off you go I, I, which is a statement I agree with however <laughs> Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> and I'm not going to try and, and make this a, a larger comment on abortion, but I think that's there, too, uh, and a woman's choice, um, because that's not the same as killing a baby. But I think there's a reading for that here, too. Uh, but I just think it's important for us to point out, doing these two films back-to-back, it, it, it would you know be foolish of us not to talk about the treatment of witches and horror. Um, and again, as we know, all witches are women, um, and that's a problem, that the way we choose to treat them in horror films, I think. Um, I don't think The Conjuring meant to do anything bad, but it certainly continues to carry forward some very problematic things. I just, I, I think it carries sort of a, the cultural baggage of misogyny. Absolutely. You know, of the last, what, two and a half thousand years of human history does. And so it's part of that whole tradition. Yeah. You can never redeem a witch. I mean, you can't baptize her. All you can do is kill her and kill her with fire and well, then she's dead. And... you can test whether or not she was a witch. And if she wasn't a witch, well, then she's dead. And if she's a witch, get that pyre ready. And kill her by a baptism. I mean, really. Exactly. And that's a problem. So think about that, listener. Chew on it and get back to me. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, the analysis I want to bring forward is, um, I think it may dovetail in some ways to things that have been said so far. But um, what we, what, I want to talk about a, another trope in the horror film, especially the Haunted House film. Uh, obviously, there's always the new house. It's always multiple story, uh, upstairs, uh, ground level, basement sort of trope. But it's often, not always, but often remote. It's often in a place um, that is secluded and separated from the, uh, the rest of the world. And also, what we have depicted in this particular film is a family that's quite isolated, that does not have uh, other resources uh, surrounding them. That when they do finally make their escape and they go off, they don't go to grandma's house or to a sister's home. They have to go hole up in a motel room. That, that, that by this choice of isolation, they have, um, in some ways, left themselves open to this uh, demonic threat that they experience. As opposed to the Warrens, who are, uh, of course, connected in some ways to the Roman Catholic Church, which is one of the major sort of societal formations of communities, religion. And also they have this great sort of uh, network of friends, uh, Drew and the, uh, the sheriff character, whose name escapes me, but he has a fabulous mustache. And so that's enough identification I think anyone needs. He does have that sweet scene with the maid, which is a great scene. It is a good scene. Um, but they are, in, in, in effect, utterly isolated. And what um, I think the film suggests, and many horror films suggest, is that there is a whole lot of bad that can happen in the world, and you're going to need to be a member of a community of some sort in order to survive, that, that human beings need other human beings uh, in order to do so. Now, uh, Lorraine and Ed Warren have this fantastic network, this extensive network. And so they're, they're quite able and resourced to deal with horror in ways that they even have a little curio shop of horrors that is an adjacent room to their home. It provides some problems, but Grandma's at the house. 
to help aid in that problem. What we have with the uh, the haunted family in this film is an utterly isolated family. And I think perhaps part of what horror film has done over the last, oh, I don't know, four or five decades now, is begin to suggest that American individualism, rugged individualism, uh, sort of the muscular Christianity of just uh, me and my faith, is, is simply not enough. This, again, the American uh, mythology of the uh, person who pulls them up by their selves by their own bootstraps, who, who deals with life at their own at their own pace, that they're that, that they're ineffective. And what has to happen then is they have to reach out and resource themselves with other people. One of the most fantastic, I think, telling scenes of the film is the pancake breakfast scene, in which there is a real communion that takes place, where finally this family has community and it feels like life again. It feels like something normal. Now there's still something to be dealt with that has to happen, but the only way that that is end up that ends up being dealt with is not through the effective nature of the husband who's out being a working man, working on the road, uh, doing his thing, but to resource himself again with uh, these others that have uh, surrounded the family, and that there is uh, immediate help from Drew and also the sheriff who's able to make their way there, and then as soon as Ed and Lorraine can make their way back to help them, they make their way, and all these people sort of converge on the home, that you need a little life of where there are people who can converge on your home when it hits the fan, when events occur, when tragedy occurs. You know, I think that which haunts us in American society is not so much the demonic as much as the specter of cancer, of alcoholism, of, of abuse, of just a tragedy in one's family. And the film may be suggesting a greater and deeper sociological and societal need in which we need to form communities of people. And that the formation of those communities may be based on belief systems and ideologies, but that by having those people in our lives, we are more able to face whatever demons may come our way. Well, and not to help you plug your own work, Dustin, but I think that kind of fits nicely with some of the writings you've done over The Walking Dead, does it not? It does, and that book will be coming out from Scarecrow Press next spring. I, I've not written the book, I've only written a chapter in the book where I sort of theologically unpack The Walking Dead, specifically in terms of the formation of community and the um, sort of divisive nature of ideologies and how sometimes those things need to be set aside in order for people to more effectively handle the issue at hand. Thank you for the plug, though, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I, I'm always happy to see those things. Well, you know I love to plug you, Dustin. It's a true mm -hmm. statement. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the analysis I would bring, and I would say that this particular film is rife with possibilities for further future and deeper analysis. And, dear listener, we would love to hear about that. Again, stay tuned uh, towards the middle of the show where you'll have an opportunity to do that. Before we do that, again, dear listener, we would love to know what you think about our analysis and what we've said so far. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. And now we need to move on to um, the selection where we choose shelf or trash, else or instead. I ask you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Uh, this is on my shelf. It's a movie I really enjoy. Um, I think it has the full potential to stand next to some of the most uh, classic horror films uh, of the last few decades. Um, I say you watch this with any number of haunted house movies. I uh, say you probably check out Insidious and Saw if you want, um, just for the wand connection. I have a soft spot for The Haunting, which features Lily Taylor as well, uh, who plays the mother here. As well as Luke, or, uh, yeah, Luke Wilson. 
Owen Wilson. Is it Owen? Oh, shit. So, I meant Owen Wilson. I almost said Luke Owen, and I was like, that's not a real person. But yeah, The Haunting with Owen Wilson and Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Yeah, yeah, Liam Neeson fighting a ghost, guys. <laughs> oh my gosh, we thought wolves were enough. They're not. Um, I would also say uh, I would check out Into the Wild, which has a similar uh, aesthetic. Uh, visually, it has this very 70s feel to it, even though it's made in the 2000s. And then finally, I would check out the Amityville Horror remake with uh, Ryan Reynolds, which I think is more enjoyable than the original. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Ward. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, your verdict, please. I'm excited to hear this because, again, you're, uh, dear listener, I don't know if you know or not, this may be the first episode you've ever dropped in on, but um, Alex is a bit of a uh, no. horror. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say novice. She's a self described, quote, Weenie Hut Jr. Yes. <laughs> she is a Weenie Hut Jr., and by she, I mean me. Yeah, um, I would recommend you stream it because. This is good, but I also don't have a larger context of what good is for horror movies. I'm missing out on, you know, kind of the classical horror movie canon. So I I am so certain there are movies that outpace this. I'm certain that there are movies that are a lot worse than this. So I would say stream it and know that, you know, there are probably more nuanced opinions of mine. I enjoyed it. As far as me enjoying horror movies go, which isn't very much. So please take that into consideration if you're not a horror movie buff. Elsa instead? Oh, there are other things. Well, because of all this I have just stated, I don't really have very many Elsas or instead. I would say um, go check this out with the Lords of Salem. I think they're a very natural double feature if you listen to uh, Dalton's analysis. We're really good at that lately, you guys. Mm -hmm. We're like two for two in a row right now. Rowish. Anyway. But I would consider doing those together. I think they complement each other well. And check out all the other movies that everyone else recommends. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon. Mr. Donald Stewart, let's say you show for trash, else or instead. I'm going to go with Alex and say stream, because I don't know, really know what the rewatch value is there at this point. Um, and, and really, what, what good is owning a film if you don't intend to view it multiple times? So I would say the, the stream slash borrow option is going to be better for you on this one. It's damn good, and I definitely recommend you watch it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't recommend you throw down the money for it. Uh, I just wouldn't feel good about that. But I definitely think you should check it out if you get the chance. Uh, to pair with it, though, some Elsa's, uh, I would recommend a, a film from right around the same time, Sinister. I can't remember the director's name, but it stars Ethan Hawke. Uh, and it does something that The Conjuring does very well, which is give you that real-world scariness. There's a particular scene I'm thinking of where Ethan Hawke is uh, going from his office to the kitchen at the middle of the night. And we see a shot, you know, we always have the shot in horror film of the character looking at spooky sound and nothing's there. What we see is the reverse of that shot, where we see all the things creeping around behind him, and when he looks around, they have crept out of view, which I think is really one of the most effective moments of Sinister. And um, that really, I thought about that when I thought about, you know, the scenes with, with all the children, um, or going down to the basement. All the creepy things that happen in The Conjuring that harken to the real-world scares that we have. Um, I thought about that moment in Sinister, so I would definitely recommend a pairing with that. Um, I'm with Arthur. I'm a big fan of the original Saw. I think it's a great movie. I think it has a sort of uh, the Twilight Zone outer limits effectiveness to it. Mm -hmm. And if James Wan had had his original vision of making a Twilight Zone-esque film every Halloween, much like John Carpenter did with his Halloween, um, I think the world would be a better place in which we didn't have seven Saw films, one one of which was in 3D. But that original Saw is... Woo! Yeah. That was... Note, dear listener, the only movie I'd watched, horror movie I'd watched before this podcast was 
saw. So I was baptized by fire. Um, but I, I really liked it because I, I love Carrie Eagles so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saw's so, so good stuff, and James Wan puts in good work. Uh, you know, if you want a supernatural film that's pretty spooky but also has a really lovely family element to it, I would check out M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Um, you know, Shyamalan's been much derided over the last couple of years. But it's a movie I love. Signs is great, and it has that really kind of adorable family you can't help but fall in love with to hitch, hitch your feelings to as you watch it. I think that's very valuable. If you want a more um, progressive and delightful portrayal of witches, check out season three of American Horror Story, Colin Coven, mm. which is just fabulous. Oh man, so many great hats and shoes in that season. Man. <laughs> I need to get to that. It's Thank good. you very much. I have one more, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Finally, um, I love Patrick Wilson beyond all measure, and if you want him in something spooky that's not insidious, check out the terrifying-ass hard candy starring him and mm-hmm. Ellen Page. Oh my oh, gosh. Man. I didn't... Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I didn't realize it was him. Yeah, I didn't realize it was him either. Yeah. Wow. Mm, Patrick Wilson. Uh, that's a great movie, and you should watch it, and if you need an excuse, then it pairs kind of interesting with this film. Excellent. Thank you very much Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to say shelf with caveats. It's only shelf for a particular um, segment of the viewing population. Obviously if you're a horror hound or a horror completist or a Jane Wan completist, uh, this film belongs on your shelf. It's one of, you know, one of his more solid works and so that's something to be considering. Also um, I would say if you're a filmmaker who's considering making a horror film ever, this is a this is a primer. This movie will educate you in scripting and plotment. It will also um, educate you quite a lot uh, with regard to just the placement of the camera and what one can do to be frightening, how you can sparsely make use of special effects, mm-hmm. how you can do something very simple like put a sheet over the mother's head, the entire exorcism, and make it terrifying. Uh, those sorts of basic ideas are, are within the film. So if those things sort of interest you, I think it's totally shelfable. Otherwise, it's a roller coaster ride that maybe you don't necessarily need to own, but it's definitely worth your time uh, to watch because it is low some loads of fun. I'm going to go with just old school antecedents for my else's. I'm going to say the original Amityville Horror. And I get what Arthur says uh, about it not working as well as the remake. But um, I do love me some James Brolin. And uh, it's definitely worth your time as Josh's dad in case you're wondering at home, dear listener. Um, also, I think you need to be taking a look at um, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Which is dealing with a similar sort of thematic uh, territory. And also set in the 70s because well, it's a contemporary piece. But it just happened to be made in the 70s. And so that I find to be quite valuable and uh, well worth your time, dear listener. Well, thank you, dear co-host, for your analyses, for your recommendations. Dear listener, I think you may have some homework uh, from our syllabus uh, this evening. But let's move on and uh, talk about how the conversation keeps on going beyond just this room. Um, how we form a community that is uh, helping us to deal with the cinematic texts that are placed before us through that magical means we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gore, do you know anything about that? Uh, yes, first you can email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on <laughs> Facebook at facebook.com forward slash goodtrashgenrecast. And I don't believe we have any feedback this week on the Facebook, uh, so that saddens us. It does, but dear listener, there's opportunities always there. The Facebook never goes away. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about magical means of social media by which we might have a conversation? Dustin, you have a lot of Twitter accounts in this feed, but there is one I am most worried about because it is so hateful. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. That's Nick Sanford's Twitter feed, by the way. The hateful one that I'm the most worried about. It is a little hateful sometimes. Makes sense. 
Coming in as feedback this week, we had a, a link to a really uh, fun cracked video from Brigham Cole, and that is six iconic movie scenes stolen from older movies that I retweeted because it was such fun. He also gave us a picture from the night from 1940 of Boris Karloff in full Frankenstein makeup playing baseball with the Three Stooges and Buster Keaton, which is so awesome, <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> Lots of tweets, of uh, retweets and favorites from the usual suspects, such as Shane Arrington and Caleb Vesley. Uh, we also, and Eric King, who is not a name I'm familiar with in our Twitter feed. Oh, but he's one of the co-hosts of the Deus Ex Media podcast, who is a fellow Oklahoma-based mm-hmm. podcast, who we have a pretty good rapport with. And it's a solid show. Uh, we also got a new follower in the form of the Say What podcast. Uh, we also got a new follower in the form of Nothing But Static uh, podcast. The only piece of proper excuse me the only piece of proper feedback we have this week comes from one Caleb Vesley he says he wants to see Gary Busey go crazy ellipses like full-on crazy I believe there's a level of crazy Busey we haven't seen that is of course in reference to our American Psycho game of actors we want to see go crazy dear Caleb Vesley um, take a look at a commercial for um, the Amazon version of the Roku the Amazon Fire is that what it is mm-hmm. yes yeah. Yeah. And, and you might hello see pants a, a, a bit of that if you're like me you like talking to things hello lamp hello pants but it's frustrating when things don't listen find Gary Busey find Gary Busey but this new Amazon Fire TV listens to me, Gary Busey. Yay! Amazon Fire TV! The only other piece of proper feedback we have comes from one Arthur Gordon, who is sitting here and is giving feedback to his own podcast. <laughs> I was gone last week. I don't know what you want from me. He wanted to comment uh, on the Lords of Salem. He was like, hey guys... Uh, We talked about wallpaper fetishes and horror, and he said, I think the wallpaper fetish traces back to literature with something like the yellow wallpaper. It adds to the mise-en-scene. I think you're absolutely right on there, Arthur. Dang. Yeah. For those of you who are not as nerdy as some of the people here, or possibly pretentious, take your pick, uh, maison-scene is, is a French phrase that literally translates to that which is on screen, and just basically describes really production design, honestly. The things you see. Yeah. Costumes, setting, everything. Production design and, and uh, shot choice, really. Yeah. But um, definitely it's kind of a catch-all term that helps, uh, as the French language often does, put into words a, a feeling that the English language lacks a singular word or phrase to describe. Like that thing they have for when you leave a party and then remember the joke you should have said. They have that. They have lots of words. They're better people than us. The Germans are full of words for levels of sadness, but that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that feedback. Of course, dear listener, we have an event coming up on October 21st. We're going to be screening Nick Sanford's Tempest Fugit at the Paramount that's in downtown Oklahoma City in Oklahoma's historic film row. Uh, Please ask me more about historic film row. I would love to talk to you about that, but I'll not bore the listener at this point. I will not take up the airwaves with that bit of conversation. That's at 7.30 in the Post Meridian, and uh, we'll be uh, screening that film, and then we're going to be doing a live show. We're going to be recording this show in which we do analysis on the feedback live for before a, not studio, but a theatrical audience in, in which we, we do this. And I, it's the first time we've ever done this, it, we've been talking about this, I don't know, since the first episode. 
Since uh, our Christmas, uh, around Christmas 2012, when we did uh, an interview with Nick Sanford, when he was on our Jackie Brown episode, we've been talking about doing mm-hmm. this, um, when he was still, you know, in, in pre-production on Tip to Get. So, uh, very There's exciting. an interview episode on that, so do listen to that. And um, if you come to our October 21st live screening of Nick Sanford's Tip to you'll also not only be treated to a live analysis and a live show, we'll probably skew a lot of our normal format for a Q&A with Nick Sanford that we're going to moderate, and with any luck, we might be able to get the at, the lead actor of Tim Spigata, Adam Hampton, who is also an Oklahoma filmmaker, and also works for the same agency that I work for, which is kind of cool. Excellent, and it's going to be lots and lots of fun, and so you want to be there. It's a free show. Just show up. you got to pay for concessions and uh, whatnot, and there are many and plentiful concessions, and they're quite delicious. They have hooch and coffee. They do. Uh, and, and snacky things, and so good times will be had by all of us um, there together, and dear listener, you don't want to miss out on participating in that event. But let's move on as the time is running in, and I realize it may be time to play the game. Greetings, and welcome. I want to play a game. This week's game is based on Ed and Lorraine Warren, and so we're going to talk about our favorite cinematic couples. That's right, favorite cinematic couples brought to you by The Conjuring. The Conjuring, when you want to think about people in love, think about Vera Famiga and Patrick Wilson. That's right, and so we're going to start talking about people who have great on-screen on screen chemistry. Because Nim and chemistry, and there was moved to the M and the other thing, but... And so, uh, what are your picks? That's what we want to hear. Of course, your listener, um, in the feedback uh, from the Facebook and the Twitter, we'd love to hear your picks as well. I ask you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what are your selections? Uh, first, I'm going to say Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, When Harry Met Sally, of course, because you do romantic comedy, you do it right uh, with those two. Sticking with the Meg Ryan train, I'm going to say Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, and specifically with You've Got Mail, I'm going to connect with that one. Uh, going back in time, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, Rear Window. I think they're a lovely couple. Oh man, I don't know about that pick, Arthur. I'm not sure. Now, now again, I, I get what you're saying, but I think Jimmy's way too old for Grace in that. Whoa, whoa, what are you talking about, <laughs> there, fella? <laughs> I ought to box your ears. Whoa, <laughs> oh, that son of a bitch over here. <laughs> oh, that went south quick. Uh, finally, my last one is uh, Beauty and Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, animated characters nonetheless, but great chemistry. I think that's a great and sort of unexpected pick. Very well played, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? Well, he stole my first one, which was uh, Meg and Tom Hanks, because I love that movie. That was my bread and butter romantic comedy growing up. Um, great on-screen chemistry, and ugh, it was just so believable. I love, I love it when the main characters like hate each other, and then love hate ships are one of my favorite. Um, then going on again, another love hate ship that's one of my favorites is these are both television picks, but uh, Logan and Veronica. Oops, that is spoilers, but I'm sorry, it has been out for ten years as of today. Uh, from Veronica Mars, so I think there's a statute of limitations. Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah, ten, it's ten years since today, as of today. Um, and then lastly, I would like to do something that is very prominent in our neck of the woods: the bromance. Um, we have that going strong with, between the fellow co-hosts and House and Wilson from House MD. <laughs> that is some on-screen chemistry that you cannot. You cannot fake. That is, that's some real, real stuff, and um, it's on, been on my mind since I finally finished the series. So, good, good times. Thank you very much, Miss Bohan and Mister Dalton Stewart. What say you? 
Well, I'm going to go with what I can only assume is a cliche pick, but I don't give a damn. Uh, it's Jack and Rose from Titanic. Because, man, I just want those two crazy kids to work out every time. I really do. Well, it does. There's a small incident with an iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> it works out. Just, you know, that damn, that damn ocean liner owner. Uh, but, man, I... Th- Leo and Kate have such great chemistry in that film, and you, you totally buy it. I, I, at least I do, because I'm a sap, but uh, I love it. Um, I didn't even think of this until Arthur mentioned his animated pick, but I immediately thought of, uh, can't for a life of me remember character names, uh, but Ed, Ed Asner's character in Up and his wife Ellie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh don't punch yeah. my feels buttons, please. Exactly. I, with, <laughs> with, you know, a five-minute prologue, we are completely invested in this relationship that really carries... The rest of the film. Yeah. Uh, and they're not on screen together after that, you know, initial prologue, but his love for her carries that whole film. And I think that's really uh, a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Yeah. So those animated pics are something there, Arthur. Um, <clears throat> in terms of TV hate-love relationships, uh, thanks, Alex, I, I would harken back to uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Buffy and Spike's weird love-hate relationship because I'm a Spike guy over Angel all the way. Finally, dear listener, it's time once again... For you to pop a top, uh, bust a cork, and pour a drink, because I'm breaking the Fincher rule. One of my favorite all-time on-screen duos, on-screen chemistry romances, is Edward Norton's narrator and Helena Bonham Carter's Marla Singer in Fight Club. That's some good stuff, man. There, that moment at the end, you met me at a very strange time in my life, and they take hands as the pixies blare and the bo- and the buildings fall, and it's just such a beautiful moment. Uh, and their their weird love hate relationship throughout that whole film is cemented in realizing he's been in love with her the whole time, and the only way he was able to express it was through Tyler Durden. Uh, and that's a great ending to a very a, a very kind of beautiful moving ending to a really dark movie. So uh, you know I don't break the fence rule that often, but there's one for you, kids. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. My picks. Let's go old school for just a second. I love uh, Rock Hudson with uh, Doris Day, and uh, who also played alongside Jimmy Stewart in a Hitchcock film in uh, the remake of Foreign Correspondent. And I uh, lo- love their chemistry, especially in Pillow Talk. I just think they're absolutely fantastic together, and it's, a, it's a definitely a relationship you believe, and that is a sign of some good acting. Speaking of good acting, um, that is a sign of great chemistry. You know, much is said of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, who recently passed away, and we have best wishes for her family uh, for that. But uh, the better chemistry, I think, is between him and Ingrid Bergman in uh, Casablanca. I think that's just it's a one-time team-up, but it's so fantastic. I can't help but love it so much. He is looking at you, Dustin. Yeah. And to keep it TV, since we've all sort of had TV picks, um, and to talk a little bit about bromance, uh, just for a moment. Um, I kind of love um, Ben. Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Oh, that's some solid bromance, man. Together in a little series called Sherlock. You may have heard it. It's made some waves. And it's... um, A wave or two. A wave or two. It's pretty fantastic. And I really do love their on-screen chemistry. I hope that those two um, play golf together a lot. I really, really do. Because I just want to believe those two are buddies. Just like we're buddies here together at the Good Trash Yeah, it's, it's not like Mythbusters when you find out Adam and Jamie don't actually hang out outside that the show. That broke my heart when I learned me. that. Like, I mean, yeah, we like each other, but we're not friends exactly. I'm we're not friends all, exactly. Yeah, they kind of do have a bit of an animosity that's delightful. But we actually like each other a whole lot. Yeah, we, we act antagonistic sometimes on Mike, but no. Fuck you. It's all bro. <laughs> It's all bro here. Yeah, yeah. Now, Alex is also a bro. Um, we have um, the broiest, in fact, because she does even lift, bro. 
Yeah, we have androgynously desexed her, and so that's an unfortunate thing for her. But nonetheless, our friendship goes on. Conclude this show as we always do with what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up? Well, a tiny bit. Um, since I saw James Wan's Insidious, I've always thought, man, wouldn't the end of this movie be cool if it was like crossed with Inception where we had some like special ops team that went into the further or mind melded with someone and went in with like cool special ops gear and like I fought demons or something. I don't, that was just a thought I had while watching Insidious was, man, wouldn't it be cool if Patrick Wilson was a whole team of like Navy SEALs? Well, I'm actually finally going to get that in some capacity apparently. There is a film in production uh, from a commercial director who is making his foray into uh, feature-length filmmaking called Spectral that's uh, slated for release in 2016. I just learned about this film pretty recently. Uh, it's going to star uh, James Badgedale, who you might remember uh, in a small role uh, in The Grey, which we discussed recently. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's the man that's dying on the plane and Liam Neeson says it's going to be okay. Oh! Uh, I remember him most fondly from AMC's Rubicon, which he was really good in, uh, but he was also featured in the film, I'm sorry, the miniseries, rather, The Pacific, which was uh, the sequel of sorts to A Band of Brothers, and he's really great in that. Uh, but anyway, this film is gonna has been described as a, a paranormal Black Hawk Down, where they are in some Eastern European city that's been infested with some sort of spookiness that they have to kill. Just <laughs> yeah! Yeah. It's I a, am all in! I know, right? And I was I gotta say, as you were talking, I was like, the crap, but man, that sounds amazing. It's also gonna feature Bruce Greenwood, who I love, and Emily Mortimer. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna have a team of, of rough and tumble guys, you gotta have Bruce Greenwood, right? So that's a film that's on my radar. Um, and check out the work of James Badgedale. He's great on the show Rubicon. He, he's probably, one of his biggest roles is uh, as one of the ancillary villains in Iron Man 3. But James Badgedale is a fabulous actor, and every time I see him, I'm so happy. And the fact that he's gonna be leading a big budget action film makes me really happy. Um, I'm also headlong into a rewatch of um, Fox's New Girl starring Zoe Deschanel and Max Greenfield and Jake Johansson and Damon Wayans Jr. and I forget the actor who plays Winston but he's also fabulous. Um, it's a show that a lot of people don't give a fair shake because there's a lot of haters for Zoe Deschanel because the internet hates to be happy. Um, but, but New Girl is so funny. Um, I can't think of the creator's name for the life of me for some reason right now but she has wrangled together a, a writer's room that just can do no wrong in my eyes and they, they write some really funny shows, um, or rather write a very funny show with some great episodes. Uh, so I really recommend New Girl. I, I've been watching it since it started debuting, and the first three seasons are available on Netflix, so I'm in the middle of a rewatch of that. So I can't more highly recommend you check that out. Last, uh, but certainly not least, longtime listeners will realize that this is going to be the first Shocktober in which we haven't discussed a film by filmmaker Ty West. Um, in our very first inaugural
inaugural Shocktober we did. And by the way, I listened to our first Shocktober. We didn't have a name for Shocktober when we started. We just did scary things because Halloween. Yeah, and well into our second Shocktober, uh, we didn't have a name for it. Um, but we do now with Shocktober, and we realized that was a great name about halfway through our second one. But for our first one, we did The House of the Devil, and last year we did The Innkeepers. And streaming on Netflix right now is Ty West's The Sacrament, which is unlike his other two horror films. Uh, he has done some other films, I believe two other films prior to House of the Devil that I, I've heard good things about, but I haven't seen, so I can't speak to. But The Sacrament is definitely a horror film, but it is a horror film unlike any you've ever seen that transcends genre words like horror and found footage, which it is both. Um, the conceit of which is a um, couple of guys from Vice travel with one of their photographers to a commune that the photographer's sister is living in as part, she's, as part of her attempt at sobriety. And um, I won't tell you anything else, because I think a lot of the fun of this film is experiencing it and figuring out what's going on. And I would strongly recommend you not read a damn thing about this movie. Not a little bit. Uh, because every write-up of this film divulges what I consider to be a major spoiler. And I'll share that if you want me to, but I'm not going to for the people who don't want that shared. But Ty West's Sacrament is streaming on Netflix right now. And we'll probably talk about it on this podcast at some point, because it's damn good. Thank you very much, Mr. Donald Stewart. Miss Alexander Bohan, let's say you. Well, I'm kind of fired up in the negative sense this week, and oh. it's mostly only about one thing. Do tell. Um, it's more of just kind of a um, issue with a larger cultural commentary that I've been experiencing as a female person myself. I'm not going to name the show, because... People who know what this show is will know it, but it's so recent that if I said anything about it, it'll just, it'll spoil it for you. Um, okay, I'm just going to say it and you can cut it out later. It's House of Cards. Oh, that's fine. No, okay. I don't think anybody's going to care. Okay, well, um, anyway, the, the female main character in this show, later on, you uh, learn that she has... Um, even though she has been childless for many years of her life, 50 plus years of her life, she is, and her husband has decided that he wanted to be childless as well. And it's working out for them and they're having such a great life. Um, she, at the end, is talking to a gynecologist who wants to, and talking about having a baby through doing some artificial insemination, hormones, whatever. It, it doesn't go into detail. Um, and I don't have a problem with that in terms of the show's context and the show's culture because they do a good build up as to why she's at this decision throughout the rest throughout the beginning of the show um but I do question why this plot point needs to be in there and why it's unacceptable it seems to be in the public public eye for a woman to be like no I don't want kids and it's okay that I don't want kids and I'm never going to have kids because this seems like a woman who would not be a mother I would choose for any of my children <laughs> um and that's okay, not everyone needs to be a mother, but I'm just why I'm just questioning the necessity. I don't I love this show. It's a great show. Um I'm just questioning the necessity of this and and questioning the writer's philosophy, because they are all dudes, um, as far as I know. Um, because that's a safe assumption in TV and movies, right? But it it just kind of seems I'm kind of just disgusted because it's okay to portray women throughout the rest of this show as sexual objects or, you know, things to be acquired. Um, but if we talk about women, you know, branching out of their, you know, gender roles um, in terms of a way that's not sexy, then we have a problem with that.
Another, it kind of reminds me of this, but there is a new pilot, because now it's pilot season, for, I can't remember the title of it, there are a dime a dozen these days, but essentially the premise is, it's like Jane the Virgin, that's the title of the show. The premise of it is that this uh, young girl, um, teen, uh, goes to a gyno and somehow through hijinks gets artificially inseminated and it works, and I'm, my plausibility factors are really getting tried with that. Um, because that's a very expensive and never and very high frequency to not work procedure. But, um, and then she decides to keep the child. That's another interesting thing in, uh, the social commentary that, you know, you're, you're stuck with it, even though it's definitely not your fault. And of course there's the whole thing with the, everyone thinks she's a huge slut. They're slut shaming her now, as far as what I can understand from the, the, uh, synopses. But, um... I have also a problem with that. I mean, obviously, if she went in, had the um, pregnancy terminated, um, it wouldn't be a show. So there'd be no drama and then it would be over. But that is a big um, other issue that I feel like it's a pretty, it's a maltreatment of women. Again, another prominent media outlet. And it's happening like right now. Thank you very much, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, for your um, art up in this. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what have you to share with the dear listeners? Uh, not a lot. The only thing I'm really excited about this week, uh, Gotham starts. They use on Fox tonight on Monday as we record. Um, I'm looking forward to checking this out. Uh, Donald Logue uh, will be in there. And mm, after Logue. his turn on Sons of Anarchy uh, last season, I'm excited to see what he does with the Bullock character and how he plays that. You know, Arthur, you've kind of got a little bit of a Donald Logue look going for you. Crazy Irish? Basically. Take it. He's a good actor. He's fun. Um, and I still need to watch Terriers. Man, Terriers you do. Uh, the other thing, just to kind of uh, take up some space, is I finally saw the leaked Deadpool footage. Leaked Send me Deadpool a link. Footage I couldn't... From the summer. Yeah, the, the, like, the test reel or whatever. Yeah. Send me a link because I can't find the damn thing. Yeah, I'll try and do it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it, uh, the tone is great. The comedy's there. The breaking of the fourth wall. The action. Uh, I was uh, reminded of a fight scene from, I believe, the Raid 2 that Dalton showed us with a high-speed car chase. Uh, fight scene and Deadpool's just a lot of fun uh, the film got greenlit and it's got a release date in 2016 uh, it should be a lot of fun and I hope they go for the R rating to give it a, a really good edge and really capture the uh, the essence of the cartoon character and so that was kind of fun to watch well thank you very much Mr. Arthur Gordon dear listener we're so glad you stayed with us so long throughout this show and heard our analysis we'd love to hear your feedback about that the thing I'm really fired up about right now is about our next film which I've never seen we're going to get vampiric and I'm kind of into vampires and so we're going to be taking a look at Stakeland next time. So if you haven't caught The Conjuring, catch it. Catch Stakeland sometime in anticipation for this week's show. And in the meantime, get a show with somebody you love and that you care about. And uh, have a conversation because it turns out that the movies mean more than just a few moments of fun entertainment. I think our analysis showed that uh, quite clearly this evening. And until then, we'll see you next time. Let me try with play.
Like me, has he taken, has he taken any time? 